when Narcissus died, the pool of his pleasure changed from a cup of sweet waters into a cup of salt tears, and the O-Reds came weeping through the woodland, that they might sing to the pool and give it comfort. And when they saw the pool had been changed from a cup of sweet waters into a cup of salt tears, they loosened the green tresses of their hair, and cried to the pool and said, We do not wonder that you should mourn in this manner for Narcissus. So beautiful was he. But was Narcissus beautiful, said the pool. Who should know that better than you, answered the Oreads. Us did he ever pass by, but you he sought for, and would lie on your banks and look down at you and in the mirror of your waters he would mirror his own beauty. And the pool answered, But I loved Narcissus because, as he lay on my banks and looked down at me, in the mirror of his eyes I saw ever my own beauty mirrored. A few maxims for the instruction of the overeducated by Oscar Wilde. Education is an admirable thing, but it is well to remember from time to time that nothing that is worth knowing can be taught. Public opinion exists only where there are no ideas. The English are always degrading truths into facts. When a truth becomes a fact it loses all its intellectual value. It is a very sad thing that nowadays there is so little useless information. The only link between literature and drama left to us in England at the present moment is the bill of the play. In old days books were written by men of letters and read by the public. Nowadays books are written by the public and read by nobody. Most women are so artificial that they have no sense of art. Most men are so natural that they have no sense of beauty. Friendship is far more tragic than love. It lasts longer. What is abnormal in life stands in normal relations to art. It is the only thing in life that stands in normal relations to art. A subject that is beautiful in itself gives no suggestion to the artist. It lacks some perfection. The only thing that the artist cannot see is the obvious. The only thing that the public can see is the obvious. The result is the criticism of the journalist. Art is the only serious thing in the world, and the artist is the only person who is never serious. To be really medieval one should have no body, to be really modern one should have no soul, to be really Greek one should have no clothes. Dandyism is the assertion of the absolute modernity of beauty. The only thing that can console one for being poor is extravagance. The only thing that can console one for being rich is economy. One should never listen. To listen is a sign of indifference to one's hearers. Even the disciple has his uses. He stands behind one's throne, and at the moment of one's triumph whispers in one's ear that, after all, one is immortal. The criminal classes are so close to us that even the policemen can see them. They are so far away from us that only the poet can understand them. Those whom the gods love grow young. Table of contents A few maxims for the instruction of the overeducated by Oscar Wilde. Unless one is wealthy, there is no use in being a charming fellow. Romance is the privilege of the rich, not the profession of the unemployed. The poor should be practical and prosaic. It is better to have a permanent income than to be fascinating. These are the great truths of modern life, which Huey Erskine never realized. Poor Huey. Intellectually, we must admit he was not of much importance. He never said a brilliant or even an ill-natured thing in his life. But then he was wonderfully good-looking, with crisp brown hair. 
his clear-cut profile, and his gray eye. He was as popular with men as he was with women, and he had every accomplishment except that of making money. His father had bequeathed him his cavalry sword and a history of the Peninsular War in fifteen volumes. Huey hung the first over his looking-glass, put the second on a shelf between Ruff's Guide and Bailey's Magazine, and lived on two hundred a year that an old aunt allowed him. He had tried everything. He had gone on to the stock exchange for six months, but what was a butterfly to do among bulls and bears? He had been a tea merchant for a little longer, but had soon tired of Pico and Souchong. Then he had tried selling dry sherry. That did not answer. The sherry was a little too dry. Ultimately, he became nothing. A delightful, ineffectual young man with a perfect profile and no profession. To make matters worse, he was in love. The girl he loved was Laura Merton, the daughter of a retired colonel who had lost his temper and his digestion in India and never found either of them again. Laura adored him, and he was ready to kiss her shoestrings. They were the handsomest couple in London, and had not a penny piece between them. The colonel was very fond of Huey, but would not hear of any engagement. Come to me, my boy, when you have got ten thousand pounds of your own, and we will see about it, he used to say. And Huey looked very glum on those days, and had to go to Laura for consolation. One morning, as he was on his way to Highland Park, where the Mertons lived, he dropped in to see a great friend of his, Alan Trevor. Trevor was a painter indeed. Few people escape that nowadays, but he was also an artist, and artists are rather rare. Personally, he was a strange fellow, with a freckled face and a red ragged beard. However, when he took up the brush, he was a real master, and his pictures were eagerly sought after. He had been very much attracted by Huey at first, it must be acknowledged entirely on account of his personal charm. The only people a painter should know, he used to say, are people who are beaten beautiful, people who are an artistic pleasure to look at and an intellectual response to talk to. Men who are dandies and women who are darlings rule the world. At least they should do so. However, after he got to know Huey better, he liked him quite as much for his bright, buoyant spirit and general reckless nature and had given him the permanent entree to his studio. When Huey came in, he found Trevor putting the finishing touches to a wonderful life-size picture of a beggar man. The beggar himself was standing on a raised platform in a corner of the studio. He was a wizened old man, with a face like a wrinkled parchment, and a most piteous expression. Over his shoulders was slung a coarse brown coat, all tears and tatters, his thick boots, were patched and cobbled with the one hand he leant on a rough stick, while with the other he held out his battered hat for alms. What an amazing model, whispered Huey, as he shook hands with his friend. An amazing model, shouted Trevor at the top of his voice. I should think so. Such beggars as he are not to be met with every day. A truvali, mon cher, a living Velasquez. My stars, what an etching Rambert would have made of him. Poor old chap, said Huey, how miserable he looks. But I suppose to you painters, his face is his fortune. Certainly, replied Trevor. You don't want a beggar to look happy, do you? How much does a model get for sitting, asked Huey, 
as he found himself comfortable seat on the divan. A shilling an hour. And how much do you get for your picture, Alan? Oh, for this, I get two thousand. Pounds? Guineas. Painters, poets, and physicians always get guineas. Well, I think the model should have a percentage, cried Huey, laughing. They work quite as hard as you do. Nonsense. Nonsense. Why well, look at the trouble of laying on the paint alone, and standing all day long as one's easel. It's all very well, Huey, for you to talk. But I assure you that there are moments when art almost attains the dignity of manual labor. But you mustn't chatter. I'm very busy. Smoke a cigarette and keep quiet. After some time, the servant came in and told Trevor that the frame maker wanted to speak to him. Don't run away, Huey, he said as he went out. I will be back in a moment. The old beggar man took advantage of Trevor's absence to rest for a moment on a wooden bench that was behind him. He looked so forlorn and wretched that Huey could not help pitying him, and felt in his pockets to see what money he had. All he could find was a sovereign and some coppers. Poor old fellow, he thought to himself. He wants it more than I do, but it means no handsome for a fortnight, and he walked across the studio and slipped the sovereign into the beggar's hand. The old man started, and a faint smile fitted across his withered lips. Thank you, sir, he said. Thank you. Then Trevor arrived and Huey took his leave, blushing a little at what he had done. He spent the day with Laura, got a charming scolding for his extravagance, and had to walk home. That night he strolled into the Palant Club about eleven o'clock, and found Trevor sitting by himself in the smoking room, drinking hock and seltzer. Well, Alan, did you get the picture finished all right, he said as he lit his cigarette. Finished and framed, my boy, answered Trevor, and by the by, you have made a conquest. The old model you saw is quite devoted to you, and I had to tell him all about you. Who you are, where you live, and what your income is. What prospects you have. My dear Alan, cried Huey, I shall probably find him waiting for me when I go home. But of course you are only joking, poor old wretch. I wish I could do something for him. I think it is dreadful that anyone should be so miserable. I've got heaps of old clothes at home. Do you think he would care for any of them? Why, his rags were falling to bits. But he looked splendid in them, said Trevor. I wouldn't paint him in a frock coat for anything. What you call rags, I call romance. What seems poverty to you is picturesque to me. However, I'll tell him of your offer. Alan, said Huey seriously, you painters are a heartless lot. An artist's heart is his head, replied Trevor, and our business is to realize the world as we see it, not to reform it as we know it. A chanson metier. And now tell me how Laura is. The old model was quite interested in her. You don't mean to say you talked to him about her, said Huey. Certainly I did. He knows all about the relentless colonel, the lovely Laura, and the $10,000. He told that old beggar all my private affairs, cried Huey, looking very red and angry. My dear boy, said Trevor, smiling, that old beggar, as you call him, is one of the richest men in Europe. He could buy all London tomorrow without overdrawing his account. He has a house in every capital, dines off gold plates, and can prevent Russia going to war when he chooses. What on earth do you mean, exclaimed Huey. What I say, said Trevor. The old man you saw today in the studio was Baron Hausberg. He's a great friend of mine, buys all my pictures and that sort of thing, and gave me a commission a month ago to paint him as a beggar. Que voulez-vous, la fantaisie d'un millionaire? And I must say, he made a magnificent figure in his rags. Or perhaps I should say in my rags. They're an old suit I got in Spain. Baron Hausberg cried Huey, good heavens. 
I gave him a sovereign and he sank into an armchair, the picture of dismay. Gave him a sovereign, shouted Trevor, and he burst with a roar of laughter. My dear boy, you'll never see it again. Son affaire, sis, l'argent de sauteur. I think you might have told me to Alan, said Huey sulkily, and not have let me make such a fool of myself. Well, to begin with, Huey, said Trevor, it never entered my mind that you went about distributing alms in that reckless way. I can understand you kissing a pretty model, but you giving a sovereign to an ugly one? By Jove, no. Besides the fact is that I really was not at home today to anyone. And when you came in, I did not know whether Hausberg would like his name mentioned. You know he wasn't in full dress. What a duffer he must think me, said Huey. Not at all. He was in the highest spirits after you left. He kept chuckling to himself and rubbing his old wrinkled hands together. I couldn't make out why he was so interested to know all about you. But I see it all now. He'll invest your sovereign for you, Huey. Pay you the interest every six months and have a capital story to tell after dinner. I'm an unlucky devil, growled Huey. The best thing I can do is go to bed. And my dear Alan, you mustn't tell anyone. I shouldn't dare show my face in the row. Nonsense. It reflects the highest credit of your philanthropic spirit, Huey. And don't run away. Have another cigarette. And you could talk about Laura as much as you like. However, Huey wouldn't stop, but walked home feeling very unhappy and leaving Alan Trevor in a fit of laughter. The next morning, as he was at breakfast, the servant brought him a, up a card in which, which was written, Monsieur Gustave Nadine, de la part de M. Le Baron Hausberg. I suppose he has come for an apology, said Huey to himself, and he told the servant to show the visitor up. An old gentleman with golden spectacles and gray hair came into the room and said in a slight French accent, Have I the honor of dressing Monsieur Erskine? Huey bowed. I've come from Baron Hausberg, he continued. The Baron. I beg, sir, that you will offer him my sincerest apologies, stammered Huey. The Baron, said the gentleman with a smile, has commissioned me to bring you this letter, and he extended a sealed envelope. On the outside was written, A wedding present to Huey Erskine and Laura Merton, from an old beggar, and inside was a check for $10,000. When they were married, Alan Trevor was the best man, and the Baron made a speech at the wedding breakfast. Millionaire models, remarked Alan, are rare enough, but by Jove, model millionaires are rarer still.